Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. But like early dashboard, right? Not the latest no, shirt yeah. when he plugged in. No, no, like the Turpentine Chaser, um, first album stuff. If we can yeah. talk about anything but anything but dashboard confessional, let's talk I about would, our I feelings. Happy, I want to talk about my feelings. <laughs> I want to talk about my feels. As a nineteen-year-old, right, listen to dashboard um, confessional. <laughs> confessional. This, this needs like to go to the podcast. <laughs> All right, should we start? Uh, I'm I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Vergopoulos. This is Uber Busters. <gasps> I with? changed it up. I changed it up. Bonus episode with, we have a special guest today, Sean. Hi, Sean. Hey, how you guys doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Day um, 135 of quarantine, I believe. Yeah. I day yeah. day 4,000. 4, I mean, I've how lost are you guys count. holding up? Um, I'm doing okay. You know, uh, uh, teaching the kids film in this kind of time, especially film production is very tricky. But uh, a lot of kids are getting creative and making like home invasion thrillers in their apartment. Ooh. So, yeah, they're finding ways that of is, doing it. That is really, really cool. Um, speaking of film production, Sean's our special guest for today, uh, Sean Senevaratne. Uh, George, do you want to read Sean's bio? Uh, I would be happy to read Sean's bio if I could find it, actually. Oh, here we go. So, uh, <laughs> Sean is a Sri Lankan. Sri Lankan-American filmmaker and educator in Brooklyn, New York. His past work has been screened at festivals such as Nantucket, Montclair, CAAM, and San Diego Asian Film Festival. Currently, Sean is developing his first feature film, and he teaches film production at Brooklyn Steam Center, as well as film history and visual storytelling at Pace University. Currently, Sean appears to be drinking a golden Good for beverage him. of some kind. Yes. And a, it's a, living his that? best life in quarantine. <laughs> it's a hazy IPA from Evil Twin. It's quite Oof. good. Sounds like a lot of work. You know me and my beer. Um, Can we quickly say something about uh, a recent film, maybe that we've seen during quarantine, that we recommend? Oh, cool. That's a good one. Go, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Sean, go first. Oh man. Um, so I've been keeping track every day um, on Instagram of my social distancing movie marathon, and yesterday I just saw Ball on Fire. Uh, Ball of Fire uh, by Howard Hawks and Billy Wilder wrote it. And uh, it's really, really good. 
and uh, Barbara Stanwyck is like amazing in it. And it's actually the first Gary Cooper movie I've seen who uh, I really dug. And um, I was inspired to watch Howard Hawks because, uh, you know, this essay that we're about to start talking about got me thinking of like Nicholas Ray and Howard Hawks and like these directors that Farber might consider termite. So, yeah, really good movie uh, leaving Criterion Channel uh, this month. So month of April. So God bless listening. the Criterion yeah. Channel. <laughs> Speaking of the Criterion Channel, this week I watched for the first time The Day Trippers, Greg Matala's yes, you were first saying. feature. Um, I watched. I actually watched it, and then I watched it again with the commentary track. Nice. Because the commentary track has Greg Matala, the editor, Anne McCabe, and Steven Soderbergh, who produced oh, cool. the movie. And Soderbergh commentaries are, are the best commentaries. Yeah. Um, and then last night I watched the first 45 minutes of the Roger Spottiswood, Pierce Bos- Brosnan starring Tomorrow Never Dies, which <laughs> is very bad. It's very, very, it's very bad. It is unbelievable. I didn't even want to watch that when I was like 11. Oh my God. I watched that movie repeatedly <laughs> when I was 12. Who's Jordan, the, what about you? Who's the femme fatale in that one? It's Terry Hatcher and Michelle Yao. That's right. Um, I Terry Hatcher is somnibulent in the movie. She is <laughs> <Som> terrible. <laughs> Great use of the word somnibulent there. Um, I Thanks. watched, last weekend I watched Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day. Amazing movie. Amazing fucking yeah. movie. It's four hours long. I did watch it in about three different sittings, but over the span of one day at least. Um, but it does just fly by. Watch cry, watch cry, exactly. watch cry. It was, it was one of those films where literally at the end of it, the last 15 minutes when something, of course, catastrophic happens and tragic, I literally was like sitting there on my couch going like, oh no, 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 no. Like why, <laughs> oh, why, why, why would this happen? Why would this happen? <laughs> but yeah. it's an amazing film. It's so novelistic Absolutely. and beautifully mm-hmm. shot. It's just brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I actually had a day trippers moment when I watched Brighter Summer Day because I watched it one night and then the next day I had to watch it again. Um, Yeah, it was like a super powerful experience. It's a beautiful Um, film. I I really appreciate the trolling of me talking about watching a James Bond movie and then George chimes in with like one of the most ambitious (laughs) epics. Well, you talked about day trippers. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Speaking of ambitious epics, do you know what's available today on. Uh, Film Society's virtual cinema Aquaman Satan Tango Oh sweet So guys get on it Okay well um, We should just jump We should just jump right in So um, We brought Sean on Because he's a filmmaker But also a film whiz Knows a lot more about movies Than George and I I would say And um, we got a question From a listener And a former guest of the show Michael Carroll He sent me He sent us a message uh, Via Twitter Where he is I am Spartacus And his question was Let me Let me get into the mic voice Just kidding Um, (laughs) While I'm familiar with Manny Farber And the theory of termite art And white elephant art I'm also a busy man Who's never made time To actually read anything by him is it basically that some art is lowbrow and some is highbrow, or is there more nuance there? And how does this apply to a pop culture icon like Batman, who's had wild, weird artists like Dick Sprang and Bill Finger, as well as polished Hollywood auteurs like Christopher Nolan and Tim Burton contributing to the mythos? Um, I think we'll... Thank you, Mike, for this question. Um, I think we'll skip over Dick Sprang and Bill Finger for the purposes of the podcast, which is mostly about the films, but Also, Dick those Sprang are made-up names, really, by the way. 
<laughs> yeah, they're not real. Those, Bill Finger those and people, Dick Sprang. They, yeah. Hey, Mike, those names are fucking fake. No, Dick Sprang is definitely responsible for the more wacky, wild Batman stuff that definitely influenced the Schumacher movies. Um, and I don't know too much about Bill Finger, but let's talk about let's talk about the movie stuff. Um, so, should we start with uh, the theory of white elephant art versus termite that art? Would be and the helpful. reason yeah. reason we asked Sean on is because after seeing. Uh, after I saw Blade Runner 2049, um, I, Sean and I believe had a heated exchange about which one was better. And he referred to Blade Runner 2049 as white elephant art and Blade Runner as termite art. I'd be curious to if, he, if he still thinks that. But jo- Sean, do you want to tell us a little bit about, give us a working definition of white elephant art versus termite art? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've definitely changed, well, not changed my opinion on Blade Runner 2049 versus the original, but, um, you know, the, as to its termite qualities, you know, that's sort of evolved a little, but, um, uh, essentially a working definition for the termite art versus the white elephant art one, um, everyone should read this essay on their own because it's really interesting and it's super well written. His use of language is, uh, says so much and he's got such a great command of what he wants to say that uh reading his actual words is so much more impactful than however i'm gonna summarize this but um i also think it's a little more sorry it's a little more complicated than than it's like the the work itself is a piece of art so it, it, it it it's open for interpretation totally yeah it's when the the criticism transcends into its own um kind of piece. It's standalone, mm-hmm. right? Um, so uh, with termite art, essentially he kind of defines this as uh, termite art is not having ambition towards some kind of guilt culture or message or any kind of pretension. Um, there tends to be in termite art a focus on individual moments to a near obsessive level, um, not necessarily considering the whole and how everything fits together. So it's all about what happens at that specific moment in a film, um, as opposed to this feeling of everything uh, needing to be in strict continuity. Um, he also says uh, it's got a sense of eating away at its own boundaries. So termite art and termites not knowing the frame or the box that it's supposed to exist within. Um, there's no larger agenda, no point you're trying to make, not a grand, uh, grand artistic uh, treatise. It's just uh, you putting in the work. Uh, ultimately, to me, it feels like it's process, not product, and that emphasis on the process being what's most important, and almost feels like an inside-out version of art. So white elephant art is in exact contrast to that. So with the white elephant art, um, you know, I didn't really know where that term was coming from. Like, I know, like, uh, the Hemingway novel Hills, like, white elephant, but... Uh, with this one over here, or the short story, uh, I was like, all right, what exactly is it? And so I looked it up and it used to be these auctions, right? And um, white elephants were these things that were considered expensive, but ultimately totally worthless or it didn't have any use. So um, white elephant- Like, like a film school degree. <laughs> like, like a film school degree. <laughs> so it um, speaks to this idea of like, Um, knowing that there is a box and a frame and self-awareness of what a good movie is supposed to be or what a movie is supposed to be, or trying to imbue like every single part of it with significance or importance in a way that isn't really about the work necessarily itself, but maybe to Manny Farber feels a bit more self-aggrandizing, more about promotion, more about um, you making a point and saying something with your art or telling everyone to 
look at your art in all caps. Um, sort of focusing a little bit more on that. So to me, it's uh, this, and what he says is this emphasis on aesthetics as opposed to the individual moment, this emphasis on continuity, um, self-awareness mm. of the work itself to the point where maybe you're trying to say something with the work or instill a message of some kind. So to me, white elephant art is this idea of like outside in, right? You're working from the outside towards what you're building in the piece. And it tends to be more about the product and not the process. I feel like if we, if we were to boil that down to like the most simple terms, I feel like uh, white elephant art is like is sh- has quote unquote good taste, and the technique is really apparent. And then termite art to me is a lot more functional and a little bit more like in indu- like industrial or whatever that might mean. Like I think of a recent film that I watched that felt like termite art was termite art was the French Connection, and for me it it was because it was it was so lacking in frills and the technique was so direct and I didn't feel like I there's themes that movie's about things but it certainly is not trying to be about anything. It it it, it its story has themes and ideas in it, but he's certainly not talking about how the the what the police do is inherently racist and problematic. It's just there in the movie itself. Do you guys, or Sean, do you have a good example of what you would consider a, a termite artist or a, a termite film versus a white elephant film? Yeah. So, um, you know, like as I was reading this essay, like I was just trying to rack my brain of like, what is the modern example of what he's talking about? What's interesting is he actually doesn't really talk about any specific termite filmmakers in his essay, but he does call out, um, you know, Truffaut and Antonioni as the white elephant examples that he brings up. Though I think he references John Ford as one of, as being like a termite actor. And I think he references another actor as doing something particularly, oh, sorry. Yeah. John Wayne, um, being termitey. But, uh, yeah. So to me now, like when I think of termite art, I think of movies by John Cassavetes, Leo Carra, um, Harmony Corinne, in the Mood for Love era, or pre-In the Mood for Love, Wong Kar Wai, um, Safdie Brothers, and I think um, Marin Ade, Alex Ross Perry, and PTA and Scorsese are kind of in between Termite and um, uh, and The White Elephant. Uh, the White Elephant, to me, is just like, uh, I always thought of it when I first read this essay, is like the lame Oscar bait shit, right? Like any movie that comes out with Eddie Redmayne or Glenn Close in it that like you've never heard of, but <laughs> comes out in January so it could get nominated for an Oscar. Um, but then HBO. Yeah, right. Um, I think a lot of prestige television. Yeah. So I was watching some fucking uh the Stephen <laughs> King show. It's a fucking show. This uh, like some Stephen King, The Outsider. Yeah. Holy shit. Is that any good? awful. It's, it's so awful. bad. I just watched one <laughs> oh, really? episode. It's so bad. And mm-hmm. um, so I think of stuff like that. I think Ari, uh, Ari Aster is the most white elephant director out right now. I think Jordan Peele, Damien Chazelle are very white elephanty. Um, and I actually wouldn't consider Antonioni or Truffaut white elephant, but especially Truffaut, but I could see Farber's points with it. You know, I'm looking at the notes that we're sharing here, and there's one name that you that you skipped over and I, and I'm curious as to why. And that name is, is Quentin Tarantino. Oh Uh, yeah. Yeah. You didn't mention him. And I know George, you have some thoughts about Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That was the the one name I skipped. (laughs) I feel like he's, he's very white elephanty because I feel like there is a very, very clear, I mean, he's known for making references to pop culture in his previous movies. And I feel like it's only in the past, let's say 
three to four films where I've been like, oh, there's more the pop culture references are in service to, to something. Whereas in the early mm-hmm. movies, I was like, oh, this guy just wants to be Ringo Lamb. Right. Or he wants to be Martin Scorsese in some way. But I don't know. I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is so rich with references, but it transcends some of that mm-hmm. stuff and really becomes a, the best the part about that movie yeah. is Brad Pitt and DiCaprio's characters. I don't know if you guys want to speak to that at all. George? Oh, I, uh, I think there's a... D- the interesting, like Tarantino is interesting because it does seem like late Tarantino, if you want to call it that. Um, and who knows how many more Tarantino films are there going to be? We're getting one more. We're getting one more. Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> that's what he says. Um, like Inglorious Bastards also, I think, has touches of like white elephant art as well. Um, I mean, I think what's interesting also about, well, a couple of things, and we could obviously go back and talk about some of the things that are already been raised, but the distinctions, I think. I think how far the goalposts have moved since um, Farber wrote this essay, I think is really important. Like to think about, let's say these directors like Antonioni and Truffaut as being white elephant artists at the moment that this essay was being written is interesting. But while I was reading, I couldn't also help but think about like what cinema generally speaking. And I hear, but I mean in terms of like the emergence of let's say of a certain kind of like Hollywood cinema in the late Mm seventies and how that would kind of really overtake so many kind of conceptions of what it meant to kind of go to the movies and consume movies and films and thinking about that sea change just two decades, two decades later in relationship to what he's writing here, I just kept thinking about how far the goalposts were moved and how different, mm-hmm. let's say um, conceptions of white elephant art versus termite art are contemporary in terms of contemporary terms, but then also thinking about the ways in which the, the binary doesn't quite, hold and one interesting thing in some of sean's notes and again we can discuss these in some detail is the way in which a lot of these films and a lot of these filmmakers and a lot of these artists have both elements at play within the same you know aesthetic object let's say so that let's say in in something like once upon a time in hollywood there are like these termite elements to it but then in so many other ways that they're much larger grander gestures towards a certain kind of white elephant mastery that I think can't be denied. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely think it's all exists on this spectrum and especially this, uh, you know, coming up with the termite art now, actually when I was thinking about these concepts, I was thinking of the idea of like a movies versus B movies. And then Mm. I was trying to think like, what are the B movies now too? You know, like do we have, do B movies exist? I think they do. I think, I think if you, and it might be a little different because I think the entire culture has shifted towards this like very self-referential um, kind of thing. Of like you know every everything, especially um, prestige TV, is self-referential. But you, you know when I think about B movies, like what I want from a B movie now is I want. I feel like the best B movies or the or a clear example of B movies is going on Netflix and finding action movies starring like Bob Odenkirk made an action movie for Netflix recently. These like lo-fi dad trying to save his daughter. Like, but that's so ironic where it's like, you know, B movies, I guess that's the thing. We're just too steeped in irony. We're like, yeah, I don't know. There's no, there's no concept of B because B is a and a is B. 
Do you feel like irony has something to play in the sort of the different the difference between a termite film or a termite art versus white elephant art? Because I feel like the entire culture has this. I think the Joker is has a lot of irony going in. I would say mm-hmm. that's a pretty white elephant movie for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that really speaks to a lot because uh, it goes back to this idea of like self awareness, right? So to be ironic, you need to be self aware. And if Antonioni is looking at the frame and is arranging it so perfectly, it's because he has a self awareness outside of himself of what that frame is going to fit like within the movie and how he'll look like a genius or whatever Farber's words um, uh, in that moment. So. I feel like almost like I saying like he or stating this preference for termite art, it's this art where it's like so insular and just focused on what the material is. It's not concerned with anything else or how it looks. Whereas irony and self-awareness is there's always going to be that level of concern with how it looks, or at least you being aware of your awareness. Have you guys seen, we talked about this recently and I thought it was an interesting example of a white elephant art fil- um, film, and then we can move on to talk about Batman, but I, I recently rewatched uh, Most Violent Year. Mm-hmm. The, um, what's uh, what's the, J.C. Chandor, uh, the J.C. Chandor Oscar Isaac film, and it's a really, really good film, um, but and I think that it's, I, I think it's a really great film, but I think that it has a white elephant quality in the main performance. I feel like Oscar Isaac is calling back to Pe- Pacino in Godfather mm-hmm. and this kind of like feeling of honor and having to appear honorable despite the things that the problems within his business, the organized crime, the things that he's doing. Um, and I feel like in that case, it's very effective because you're, he's playing on our, our cultural knowledge of a character and he's he's using that as a way to instantly have us form sympathy with this character because we go like, oh, it's like Al Pacino and the Godfather. Mm-hmm. I care about Al Pacino and the Godfather. We might not yeah. make that connection intellectually, but by referencing someone else, he's creating a more a more interesting character, if that makes sense. Or I guess, but it, I, yeah, there's like a shorthand that then... Is, yes. is created, which then I feel like Farber would be like, but then you're not really digging into the material, you know, you're like relying right. on like the audience Tropes. seeing this character and like recognizing this other character as opposed to just like really creating something that's like there in the material. So then are all Marvel movies white elephant movies? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> in different degrees. Yeah. yeah. Right. But see, that's what's really interesting about them, right? Because then all of a sudden, like, questions of production values and of kind of, like, literally just, like, economic questions regarding budgets come into play to think about, let's say, the amount Mm. of money that's invested in these products that are both utterly sheer, like, spectacles, but also pure Mm -hmm. shit, like, devoid (laughs) of any sort of real value or, let's say, attempt to actually say something, which makes them termite perhaps, yeah, because there, right? there's no fucking thesis statements other than the fact that their own existence is kind of what perpetuates yeah. them and keeps. And them they're going. not aesthetically pretty movies, you know. They're like purely functional in its filmmaking. So I don't know. Maybe that is the termite art then, right? <laughs> well, aren't they aren't they beautiful like... though? I mean, there's some sorry. There's some moments though of like I, the spectacle. I mean, I'm not not, not that I'm saying that that there's. <laughs> They're when not you, beautiful. When you blow Marvel movies. When you just blow them. <laughs> well, if only I could, I would. Um, I'd marry them if I could. 
Um, I think some of the I think Thor Ragnarok is a good looking movie. Yeah, I mean, um, all movies, all movies at. of that budget or anything and that level of professionalism yeah. is always going to look good. Look but good, like when yeah. you think of certain moments and like you know you watch the Nolan movies right and they have these visual moments that just like stay in your brain where it's just like oh whoa this is like this is a movie that looks good right like the Marvel movies look professional but I don't know if they ever like they never they look feel more like, like TV yeah and it also feels like there's less directing in terms of like auteur cinema or whatever like you're not gonna have like an Ari Aster sort of frame in there of like look at this shot look how fucking awesome this shot is it's so significant well that's kind of what I think make the the Russo brothers uh, really good for Marvel films mm-hmm. because I don't I don't think and I don't mean this critically I think we spend too much time talking about filmmaker styles to be honest yeah. in terms of like whether they're good or bad but like those guys are really good at delivering a perfect perfectly f- like a perfect style for those movies and that they're not they're not Ari Aster or they're not they're not trying to bro- break the mold but I do think that there are you know to 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 um and then we should talk about Batman, but the beginning of the uh, the first Infinity War movie, there's like a lot of handheld. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of over the scene of all these people having been murdered on um, on a spaceship. And like, it sounds absurd, but that moment is really, really highly effective to me because I think they just went like, let's just focus on all these things and let's like shoot. Like, you don't see a lot of handheld in Marvel movies, especially um, big uh, special effects moments and and it, it's very effective to me it, mm-hmm. it gives it that feeling of being termitey and it that it's on the ground and that it's happening in real time yeah. and, and i i think that like i think that this speaks to the larger question of like you can have you know when we think about this kind of stuff you can have a really powerful moment in an otherwise kind of generic by the numbers kind of film and and uh, if you allow yourself to if you allow yourself to divorce your idea of what the whole product is, which I think is very termite that you can have wonderful moments within a, with when you're not totally concerned with the entire package. Totally. You know? Yeah. Or like asserting like the Rousseau brothers don't try to say with their movies, like we're auteurs, you know what I mean? Like they're yes. just trying to deliver a good movie and, uh, it's functional and it works. And like, you're right. Like there are some moments in the Marvel movies that feel like really powerful moments and not because of like this beautiful shot framing, you know, it's coming right. from the material. Well, and interestingly, they came, they made a feature that um, was speaking of Steven Soderbergh that he, I believe, shepherded to the studio. And there's no filmmaker, I think, more concerned with process over product than mm-hmm. Steven Soderbergh. This For sure. Is, you know, he's made 14 movies since quarantine started, like with his Legos <laughs> in his house, and they're all going to be on Netflix next week. But like, you know, uh, certainly kind of a different, kind of a yeah, more process driven kind of approach let's talk about um so let's talk about batman let's talk about specifically the batman films that we've already discussed so we'll we'll group roughly burton schumacher and nolan into that category you guys want to start with burton yeah um cool yeah george you want to go for yeah um gee in terms of like the where we list them i mean i was looking at sean's list and not to kind of um jump on his on his list son of a bitch but <laughs> can't believe you but <laughs> i i do think i mean i mostly agree with what he was saying here so batman returns in terms of are we so ranking them let's say for most termite to less termite um yeah that there's certainly like a very kind of um insular let's say obsession in these films but again this is like where the the, the binary to me doesn't always kind of entirely hold mm-hmm. be- because there is like such a 
thumbprint on those films that is so like Burton-y that you can't watch those films without in some sort of way thinking about them as Tim Burton films. But yes, I think Batman Returns is so much weirder and so much more eclectic than the original that that one is in terms of those two. That one definitely is the one that is most termite mm-hmm. Yeah. So Sean's list goes from most termite to most white elephant. And, uh, you know, it's more complicated. But basically the way that he describes it is the Burtons are the most termite followed by the Nolans. And um, Burton's Schumacher's Nolan. So Sean, do you want to talk about why Tim Burton is the most quote unquote termite recognizing that there is a something of a, a, con- a continuum to this or a bi- non-binary? I went into this thinking actually that um, Schumacher would be my most termite. And then I realized that camp isn't necessarily termite. You know, I just, I read the essay and I kind of broke down my thoughts on what it what does it mean to be termite and what does it mean to be white elephant and then i made this spreadsheet because i fucking love spreadsheets of like all the batman <laughs> movies and with these columns for like white elephant you didn't rewatch termite. all of them did you <laughs> no no i did not rewatch but i was listening to the scores while uh while doing my homework uh, nice <laughs> <laughs> and um so yeah with with the burton ones what's interesting is like we do recognize like this Burton style but it almost feels like he was this weird filmmaker that's always been doing that thing like since his shorts and then he somehow was asked to direct this big movie and he's just making a Burton movie with like Warner Brothers money which is what I almost felt in like Batman Returns especially Batman Returns more than Batman but um, the th- things that felt termite to me in the Burton movies are uh, particularly the performances and his casting mm. of these actors that sometimes feel like they're working outside of the material as opposed to within the material. And then like within these scenes, really like eating up the material and like moving these characters forward in really interesting, unique ways um, versus like the kind of more hamminess that we'd see in like the Schumacher ones. Like these are over the top too, but in their own way. And I think of like Michael Keaton when he's playing the public facing Bruce Wayne, like when he's at the party and when he's having the date with Vicki Vale and Michael Keaton's doing so many interesting, fascinating things that like, it's not a functional directory thing of saying, all right, Michael Keaton, I need you to like position your face three quarters and look at your key light over there because this shot's going to be amazing. It feels like, yeah, like this scene is about Bruce Wayne being a fucking weirdo and Michael Keaton, you're just doing your thing right now and showing me that Bruce Wayne is a weirdo. (laughs) It's really great. So inspired. And like you could see Michael Keaton just like really chewing through the material. And um, and with Batman Returns, he really commits more to these weirdness. It's like these scenes that are like, what is this scene about? Where does it fit? I don't know, but it's Selena mm. Kyle fucking having this ball in like a, uh, what's it called? Like a clothing department store and like destroying her yeah. apartment. And those scenes just on their own go on way too long in a way that's like really cool. And with his aesthetics, it's interesting because his production design is very Burton-esque. You know, I think that's more of what we think about when we think of the Burton look is like costumes, sets, um, uh, things like that. But his directing is actually just very functional. Like uh, watching scenes of the movie on YouTube, just to, like remind myself some of the visuals. It's just like kind of very standard sort of directing. So it almost feels like he is just figuring out what is the best place to capture the action. So yeah, so I've I've labeled him a goth termite. I love it. Yeah. 
if he's our goth term. That's a good one. Um, well, let's talk about your neon elephant, which I think was the name of my, my second album, um, Joel Schumacher. To me, this initially felt like the most white elephanty, but I think, like I said, he felt the most campy to me. Wait, the, the, the Schumacher superficial. The Schumacher felt the most white elephant or the most termitey. To me, white elephant. But huh. I have to say that that was before I spent more time thinking about this. Like, I think that it's very easy to to to. Um, without a lot of um, reflection, assume that that has something that that white elephant refers to the amount of production, which I think it does, but like it's more complicated than that. So Schumacher was an interesting one for me to think about. And I, and I think that the Schumacher and Sean, I'd love to hear both Sean and George, I'd love to hear both your thoughts, but I feel like the the Schumacher is more concerned actually with the Batman mythos than Burton's version of it in the sense that like, there's a lot of callbacks to young Batman, especially in um, Batman and Robin when he's talking about Alfred and they, they both attempt to, to add to Batman's trauma, which I feel like is a call to continuity a little bit. And he's very concerned with, um, with Kilmer and Clooney having the right, the quote unquote right kind of quality, the right kind of tragedy. Whereas with Keaton, I feel like, like you said, Burton was like, you're kind of weird. You're a stand-up <laughs> comedian who's become an actor. You just played Beetlejuice. Why can't you be a suave billion? It's it's more it's more self-referential to right. Batman as a yeah. character. But yeah. there's, there's also such a commitment, though, to the narrowness of a certain kind of vision of that character. Mm-hmm. I, I've, in those Schumacher films, that the narrowness of it doesn't appear in Burton's version or Nolan's version, which to me also perhaps furthers the argument that those are the most termite Like there's a commitment to the absurd, campy, comic book Batman that is to some degree, I think, really alienating to people who expect a certain kind of version of Batman that might be more, let's say, universally um, uh, acceptable in certain sort of ways. So also like, I think like the queerness of like Schumacher's mm-hmm. version also of the character, I think applies what? there. It's like, what's going on? But he's not queer. uh, But there's something in that version of the character that to me also makes it like potentially more termite than Burton. But either way, I think we're all on the same page that on that spectrum of termite to white elephant, Nolan is very much on the side of white elephant. Mm -hmm. And the other two are on the other side. Let me ask you this then, because I I was thinking about this while you were talking a little bit. Um, To me, one of the things that I, I, we've talked a little bit about is that Christopher Nolan to me, um, and it's a specific type, but his, all of his movies are concerned, I think with like male anxiety. I think he's really, really like a, a, a guy who's made a lot of blockbusters, but they're all about his fear and the things that he's scared of. And I feel like he applies, he uses Batman as a way to explore that stuff. So his, the fear of losing the parents, the fear of kind of like the inverse of yourself and then the fear of losing control in the Dark Knight Rises. I feel like these are all very Nolan-esque touches. So does that, is, is that he's exploring his own kind of particular neurosis more than he's exploring the mythos of Batman make him more or less white elephanty? Because I feel like he's more concerned with his own interests more than he is with representing Batman in the quote-unquote comic booky way. Does that make hmm. sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, it does, but I mean, I think then you get, I think it's a kind of, let's say, director or artist psychology in the sense that mm-hmm. you can make an right. argument that every single aesthetic object directly relates back to the artist's psychology and not, let's say, acknowledge the fact that like those Batman films in particular 
are constructed in such a way that they're meant to be prestigious and they're meant to be, let's say, serious film, serious mm-hmm. cinema in a way that the other ones are not. Right. For sure. Um, yeah. And it, really in thinking of the, since it sounds like, so we're transitioning to Nolan now, right? Transi- yeah. Okay. Um, just to sort of thinking of Schumacher as like the, the weirdly, weirdly bridging point. Right. So like, Liam started thinking, all right, maybe that's the most white elephanty of them all, right? George, you're more on the like, it's the closer closer to termite side. Um, this one was real tough for me because I really thought going into it, like, oh yeah, that's the termite, right? You mean uh, Nolan? The Schumacher, oh, right? As uh, and then um, you know, thinking of some of those scenes, uh, there's the camp there, but then I was thinking about how there's self aware camp, and then there's just camp that's just truly camp. And, um, oh, that's good. Then I asked myself because it, uh, Farber talks about this idea of burrowing, right? So I just kept going back to some of the words he was re- using over and over again, like burrow and inertia. And so I was thinking of like, do any of the scenes in Batman and Robin really burrow? Um, and I think in Batman and Robin, for sure, there's some scenes that like really burrow. Um, I don't know if the actors particularly do. Sometimes they feel like they're just mugging for the camera. But um, yeah. I was really torn on this because there, uh, there are, are certain termite qualities, but I kind of had this in the middle uh, for that. Now, getting cool. to Nolan, what's really interesting is... Um, He's actually unfussy about technique. When we're thinking about just pure aesthetic technique, like he's very much like a functional sort of director that is very actor focused. Um, You know, his stuff is usually just like covering the scene in handheld and like a master and then like two singles. Right. And then uh, cutting it together in the editing room. He's actor focused. You know, they just do a couple of these takes. It's kind of handheld. It's got this very loose sort of unfussy style. But then I thought of what all this is in service of. And even though it's actor focused and he's got these amazing actors that could really dig deep into this material, everything in the movies, as much as I love all three of them, is purely functional. Every single scene just exists to go to the next scene and then to go to the next scene. And everything is a plant. Everything is a plant and no scene or moment really gets a chance to just like exist on its own. Cause his movies are so stuffed with content um, mm. that it just like when I was rewatching the dark Knight um, a few weeks ago, that's what struck me this time. I was like, Oh my God, like this movie has so much stuff in it yeah, and it's, it's just going like that, like really, really fast. And so in the one Farber uh, thing that he was saying was um, uh, this adherence to continuity, right? Like nothing can just exist on its own. And in this one is very much this rude Goldberg. One thing has to lead to the next and purely exists to lead to the next. So um, yeah, white elephant for me. I want to offer like a one quick caveat, I think to two termite moments in the dark Knight, and, and I'd be curious or maybe two and a half. One is the interrogation scene, because I think the entire movie gives over to that. And it really be that, that scene becomes a thing unto itself that I feel like transcends even the, I think that that movie's creaky. Like you really feel that the movement <laughs> happening and that moment really, really pulls you, it, you kind of snapped out of the, the flow of it by how I think quite frankly disturbing that scene is. But the other thing that I think about is the, it towards the end. And when the camera turns upside down and the Joker is upside up, but upside down, I feel like that moment really kind of like, I don't know if it's white elephant art or termite art, but it, it exists as a, as, as such an unusual stylistic choice within that film 
that it really feels like something else. They, those feel like transcendent moments that transcend yeah. the kind of functionality of the rest of yeah. the film. And I guess that's the interesting thing about uh, thinking of the distinction between the two, because termite art can also transcend. So it's a question like talking of that camera movement. It goes back to sort of what George was saying of artist psychology and trying to figure that out and artist intent. Cause it's like, is that moment his show off? He like, look at my fucking dick. I get art. And like, you know, that is, is it that art, moment bro. or is it really just like, I'm so committed to this one moment and this is the only way to go further with it. Yeah. Well, and another interesting thing to th- scene to think about is is the opening heist, which uh, um, is so directly referential to Heat. But that sequence doesn't need to be in the movie. So in a way, it's very termitey in that it is a long. It's a it's an opening digress. It sets up the world, but we don't need that scene to understand the movie. We, I think we that scene is a little bit of showboating, but it's also like an incredible short film within a much and it and it starts kind of before the movie starts. So I just, I think that's that's, interesting. That's where I think it's also very much a question of mastery going to this idea of, like we said, showboating. Like, yeah, totally. Like white elephant art to me, at least as Farber was talking about it, one way to think about it is think about it like as mastery and as control. And to also then think about how this essay is making an argument for like auteur theory in a certain way. So one of the interesting things about the essay also, and it's come up here in discussion, is to think about, let's say like, Again, all of these different kind of elements that go into making a film and obviously like that you need so many different people and so many different things on the same page to fucking make just a simple film. So to think about, for example, like how one can perhaps have like a white elephant film and yet, however, have, let's say, a performance in it that is in some sort of way termite so that it runs against the grain, let's say, of the overall feel of the entire project which again is just something that i haven't really thought a lot about but to think about again like what is this essay saying again about like notions of of auteur theory of kind of mastery of artistic control i mean one thing we for example we haven't talked about is the fact that farber is primarily a painter and that the essay also begins with him talking about painting in contrast to film which i think is also Mm -hmm. like a very interesting historical context to again at least consider but even if you know like i don't really have anything fucking concrete to say about that right now but i feel like the big thing that we've illuminated i think that it's very it's very simple to in in in, not simple but in farber's case he views white elephant art mostly in a negative sense Mm -hmm. yes totally termite art is quite positive but i think that it's very fair to say that like there are movies that are quote-unquote white elephant that we love i mean i think like Denis Villeneuve is a great filmmaker Mm -hmm. and he makes, he's made some very, very, very white elephant-y movies. Mm -hmm. Um, But he also made Enemy, which is very termite-y to me. So it's like, there are really, you know, the the best kind of movies can exist in both worlds. I feel like, I feel like the problem that maybe we all have with prestige with prestige television you know i didn't watch it i'm sure the watchman show is good but how heavily these shows feel like they have to lean on an existing continuity i think is exhausting people mm-hmm. which is why a film like uncut gems is so successful or a film films of that ilk or parasite because these are movies that are not are not adhering to a continuity or a previously established kind mm-hmm. of character they're just I mean, I feel like those are two pretty termite movies and part and maybe maybe the the question of termite versus white elephant is our own cultural reference to things mm-hmm. in terms of how we think about them. 
Yeah, so I, for sure. I feel like there's a there's a there's a continuity yeah. that you can have. You know these 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 um, definitions or the, these sort of categories do not define a film's quality or if we like it or not. Sure, correct. Yeah, yeah. totally. Correct. <laughs> correct. Yeah, I mean it really is just uh, it's a spectrum, right? And I think um, with Harbor's defi- with Farber's definition. Um, most of the films that we tend to love are white elephant films. You know what? Everything we've been taught, if we've gone to film school, and what to look Don't for and what is considered like good art is uh, tends to be the white elephant art. It's not just the Eddie Redmayne lame Oscar bait shit, but it's all the stuff that, like, you know, The Godfather. I'm sure Farber would consider to be white elephant art, right? Um, uh, all these things that are like sort of sacred cows to us might be considered that. Um, but we don't need to necessarily adopt that binary thinking, right? Like we could, or even say, give any kind of association to one being good and one being bad. It's more just like termite is sort of this and has this quality to it. So that to me feels like some of the character actors in Uncut Gems. Um, and then white elephant films have sort of this quality to it. So yeah, maybe that is Midsummer, but you know, there. I don't totally love that movie, but there's some parts to it that are really fucking awesome. Maybe Wes Anderson is like white elephant art. I love Wes Anderson movies, right? So um, I think it's less about, yeah, the judgment and really just trying to think of his arguments in terms of um, what are those qualities and what do they sort of mean? So we've talked about also, if anybody can think about it off the top of their heads, we've talked about white elephant art that is shit, like the Marvel movies perhaps. But is there... Are there termite movies that are also shitty? I'm sure. And we just don't know them because we don't even watch them. You know, it's like that <laughs> fucking uh, you bowl guy from Germany or whatever. Right. It's like these. Well, I think that there's, <laughs> I think that there's, there's one, there's one more interesting thing to, to think about, um, which is, um, and Sean, a movie that you and I've talked about a lot is the Apu trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and how I feel like in a weird way, those films have kind of transitioned from being termite to white elephant in the culture because this was a guy making movies with no money. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's so much of the, what's great about them is what happened in the moment as they were happening. And they're kind of, what's the term for a, a coming of age film? Um, they have that kind of quality of being like sort of, they've become um, canon. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a, there's a way that you could be like, oh yeah, they're so, they're so like, you know, kind of, they're white elephanty in the fact that like they're they're self-referential or all these things but really like it's it's the culture that defines these things not the mm-hmm. filmmakers making sure. the movies yeah you know yeah. so it's an interesting question yeah or is that white elephant because he was striving to make art and make an artistic statement and all the bollywood stuff that was just being made for entertainment that people really uh you know really spoke to them is that the uh the termite I don't know, but I guess he's got us thinking about these things and like trying to understand what these qualities are and what to look for. Yeah. So thank well, you. Thank you, a, Manny. That's a, thank you, Manny. R.I.P. Pour one out for Manny. Pour some of your evil twin ale out for, for Manny. All right, guys, this was, this was very good. Thank you so much. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos. Sean and I'm Sean and I'm Sean (laughs) Sinavarotny wait Sean just very briefly is there anything you want to plug anything I want to plug um no not at the moment I'm just uh busy trucking away I've uh written some things and I'm busy teaching and uh 
you know, you could follow me on Instagram. There's some funny, dumb content on there that I've been posting, uh, stuff about my record collection and stuff about movies I've been watching. So I am the Brown Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at the Brown Sean um, on Instagram and any other social media. So, yeah. Awesome. This was Overbuster. Overbusters. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks. Overbusters? Overbusters. 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 Sometimes I have to spell check uh, spell check Uvra when I have to type it in. Oh, are we still it's done? spelled <laughs> in like all of our documents. <laughs> yeah. All of our documents have different spellings. We are totally I'm going to cut. I'm going to cut. All right.